Hello and welcome to Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Kirk Honda, professor and licensed therapist. It's just me again today. I thought I would continue talking about evolutionary psychology. So again, just to review the basics of evolutionary psychology, it's, it's complex, but the basics as I see them are, are as such. Basically, what evolutionary psychologists believe is that ancient humans on the African Pleistocene savanna evolved particular psychological mechanisms that were adaptive to their environment, and that we still possess those evolved psychological mechanisms today. And by studying them, we not only understand ourselves better, but we also may be able to uh, intervene in a way that might be helpful. So, for instance, one study I remember reading had to do with biophilia, or the love of nature. It, it seems that some evolutionary psychologists believe that we evolved a love of nature because we lived in nature, and we adapted to an environment that had natural elements in it. And, you know, perhaps those individuals who had a love of things that were green and a love of running water were more likely to survive rather than those ancient individuals who didn't have a psychological mechanism that compelled them to love nature. You know, so you take two men, uh, one man loves nature, is born with that trait that loves nature and another is not. And uh, the guy who loves nature tends to hang around foliage and water and other things that are associated with uh, nourishment and, and food. Whereas another guy, he doesn't have any preference and he ends up wandering out into the desert uh, because he doesn't know any better and dies and as a result isn't able to have children. So um, this is my explanation of why humans may have developed biophilia or a love of nature. This isn't what was in the literature, but just to give you an idea of how that might look. So there's some research that goes into this. And when they study humans today, sometimes there's evidence of this biophilia in that when they do research on people at work, they find that people that have windows that they can see outside um, when there's natural light, sunlight, when there's uh, plants around in the office, as opposed to if you're working in a cubicle where you can't see the sun or nature, the people who are around natural elements tend to work better. They're more productive. They have more energy. They have more job satisfaction, this sort of thing. Now, is that evidence that there's a genetic basis for that difference? Uh, I would say no, but, you know, it might hint at it. Now, a lot of evolutionary psychologists will, will say that, well, this clearly demonstrates that we evolved a psychological mechanism to love nature. And I'm not saying that we didn't, but I'm just saying that it's difficult to prove that. It seems intuitive, but a lot of things that are quote-unquote intuitive are not necessarily reality. For instance, most people jump behind the wheel of a car and drive down the freeway without being terrified, whereas if you put a harmless spider in their hand, they would be terrified. Now, it's intuitive that the spider is a terrifying situation and the, and the driving down the freeway is not, but statistically speaking the harmless spider is a lot less likely to harm you and kill you than driving on the freeway. And this also hints at a psychological mechanism that was evolved during ancient times. Uh, spiders were probably a part of our environment in Africa, and there were probably some spiders that were poisonous and deadly, or at least harmful. And those who possessed an innate fear, 
that they're born with of spiders were probably more likely to survive than those who didn't. Whereas back then there were no freeways or cars. So we did not evolve a fear of being on the freeway. So in that way, our fears sometimes point toward what psychological mechanisms might have been evolved during ancient times. Okay, so, so, that's, so that's, you know, the basics of evolutionary psychology. So let's go into some research here. In previous episodes, I've, I've talked about homosexuality and I've talked about anorexia and other things. And today I want to talk about uh, filicide or when parents murder their children. So it, that's called filicide, you know, like there's homicide and genocide. And filicide is when parents murder their children. So this is a sad topic, but it's a topic that I read about in a, an article regarding evolutionary psychology, and I thought I would share it with you. So the article is by Friedman, Kavni, and Resnick, published 2012 in the journal Psychiatric Clinics of North America. The, the title of the article is called Child Murder by Parents and Evolutionary Psychology. And in this article, the authors explored the hypothesis that killing one's own children has served as an adaptive reproductive strategy for early humans. And in this article, the authors explored the hypothesis that killing one's own children has served as an adaptive reproductive strategy for early humans. And this psychological impulse has survived as a part of the current human behavioral repertoire. So they provide a bunch of statistics regarding filicide and... Just to highlight some of those statistics, which are interesting, are that one half of child murders are caused by mothers and the other half are caused by fathers. And two, the second factoid here is the highest risk of child homicide is on the first day of life and that these early acting perpetrators of, of filicide are most often the mothers. I thought that was interesting. So the, if a child is going to be killed by their parent, it's most likely to happen on the first day of life. Uh, three, the third factoid here, step-parents are much more likely to kill children than the biological parents, which is interesting. The fourth factoid here involves the motives, uh, the reasons why parents identify as the reason why they kill their children, and that those include altruistic killing. In other words, they believe that uh, the parents believe that it's in the child's best interest if they die, that sort of thing. Like if the if the parents believe they aren't going to be able to provide for the child. Or another reason why it seems that parents will kill their children has to do with the parents being acutely psychotic. So they might believe that the child is the devil, for instance, and they kill the child because the devil has possessed the child and the only way to free the child is to kill the child. I mean, I'm just making that up, but that's a potential psychotic belief that would compel a person to kill their own child. Another reason is identified in the article was if the child is unwanted. Some parents will kill their children because they don't want to take care of a child. And the last reason they identified was partner revenge. And that means that when someone gives birth to a child in order to get back at their partner, they will kill their own child to hurt the feelings of the other parent. And as I'm talking about this, it's it, it's um, sad uh, to talk about these things. I, all right, moving on. Uh, the, the fifth factoid here, in the article, they identify, for reasons that I'll get into later, that 24 nations, including the UK and Australia, have decreased penalties for mothers who kill their child within the first year of life. Isn't, isn't that interesting? So 24 nations around the world, including the UK and Australia, 
when people kill people, they have a certain penalty. But they have a lesser penalty for parents who kill their own child during the first year of life. And I'm not a legal scholar, so I really have no idea. But it just seems like a strange thing, right? But I'll get into why I think the authors identified that later. The sixth factoid here is that the U.S. rate of filicide is 8 per 100,000, while in Canada the rate is lower at 3 per 100,000. So it's pretty low in both the U.S. and Canada, but it's lower in Canada than the United States. And why would that be? I don't know. And the last factoid they present here, that despite public perception, a large percentage of child murders are committed by parents who are not seriously mentally ill. Okay, so those are some of the factoids. So then they go into some of the theory about filicide. And they identify research that suggests that filicide was an evolved reproductive strategy for early humans. That early humans evolved a psychological mechanism to kill their own children under particular circumstances. For instance, if a newborn was defective in some way, or if it was born at a time when the parents were having difficulty, or it was perceived that the child would require unwanted cost or unwanted effort in child rearing, if these conditions were present at the time of birth or soon thereafter, the theory goes that some parents would have had an advantage if they were to kill their child instead of raising that child. And they don't explain this very lengthily, but if I were to uh, take a guess as to what this exactly means is that, again, you have two sets of parents, and you have mom and dad A and mom and dad B. And, and both just had a baby. The children are both six months old, and they are both experiencing very difficult times. There's a famine, there's a drought or something like that. And there's only so much food and water to go around. And if they are feeding three mouths or two and a half mouths, then they might all die. Whereas if they kill the child and have the resources for themselves, then they'll survive through the famine and drought and be able to reproduce to have an additional child in the future and therefore better able to pass on their genes. So that's my guess as to what they're saying there. Now, as I've said in previous episodes, this has a lot of assumptions in it. This assumes that humans evolved in that way. This assumes that our current behavior that we see in humans is evidence of this ancient dilemma that humans faced in the past. It also is fairly reductionistic in that it, it, it says, well, humans in the present kill their children because of an evolved psychological mechanism, and that's the only reason. And, and certainly, I would imagine that when you really look at the various factors that go into current parents killing their children, there are many factors, some present with, in some situations and some not. But anyway, that's, that's how the theory goes. Um, and they provide some real-world examples as evidence of this psychological mechanism that may have been adaptive to early humans. For instance, as a real-world example, they say that they identify research that found that of the mothers in India who, who are hospitalized for postpartum mental illness, 43% had thought about murdering their child, and 36% had behavior along those lines. So basically what they're saying here is that when they surveyed mothers in India who were having mental illness 
postpartum mental illness, that pretty good percentage of them had not only thought about killing their child, but had actually even exhibited some behaviors along those lines. Uh, they didn't say whether or not any of the children were actually murdered, but, but there you go. So throughout this article, they use the phrase rational act. And this is because this is an article written by and for forensic psychologists. Basically, I believe the purpose of this article, and it's, it's not explicit, I think the implicit purpose of this article is to provide forensic psychologists with research that can support a defense for parents who kill their children and who do not have mental illness. And so let me ex expand on that a little bit. So in the States, if you say have a case where a mother kills her child, her baby, well, one of the things that is likely to come up is whether or not the mother was insane at the time of the, of the crime. So say she was psychotic or she was so depressed that she became psychotic. Well, in the States, um, and I'm not a legal expert, but from my understanding, this individual can claim that they are not guilty by reason of insanity and that they shouldn't be punished by the law. They should be treated to become not insane anymore and therefore likely to commit such a crime in the future if they are getting proper treatment and are no longer mentally ill. So some people that kill their child might be found not to have a mental illness and therefore they cannot claim not guilty by reason of insanity. So lawyers are looking to, to psychologists to provide other defenses. If they can't provide a mental illness defense, then, then what, other, what other defenses are there psychologically? And I think this article is trying to provide that. And they even hinted this basically at the end of it. But so when you have an individual who killed their child and is not mentally ill, this article provides lawyers with an argument that the behavior was a psychological mechanism that was employed. And that argument might mitigate the consequences, the legal consequences of the act. So, so for instance, I'm guessing instead of first degree murder, you might get it down to manslaughter or something along those lines and therefore have a lesser sentence. So just think about that for a second. It's, you know, it's, it's a very interesting idea here that evolutionary psychologists, by making a lot of assumptions about ancient humans and about our genetic disposition and about what psychological mechanisms we may have evolved, that making all these assumptions, they can provide lawyers with the ability to stand in court and say, uh, Your Honor, or the jury, my client has, has been found to not have a mental illness and is therefore sane, but she killed her child because evolutionary psychology has shown us that parents have an evolved psychological mechanism that compels them to kill their child when times are tough. And we all know that my client had, was going through a tough time soon after birth, that the family was poor and there was trouble in the marriage and she wasn't getting any support. So therefore, we ask that you reduce the charge or the sentence or something. And again, they're not saying this in the article. This is just me making a lot of assumptions. But um, I think, but I'm pretty sure this is what this article has to do with. Now, for those of you outside of the legal system, this might seem shocking to make this argument in court. But it, this sort of thing happens all the time. And it's fine. Defense lawyers are supposed to defend their client in whatever way they can, in, in whatever legitimate ways they can. But the problem here is that how many people in the court 
understand the critiques of evolutionary psychology. It's not very likely that they do. It's also not very likely that the prosecutor is going to be able to find a psychologist to refute this finding because, again, a lot of people just swallow what evolutionary psychology is feeding. So that's a problem. When evolutionary psychologists step forward and say, here, look at this, and there's not a way to critique it or it's not often known that there is a critique of it, then all of their assumptions become very powerful and will affect things in a way that I think when I really look at it has some big problems. Um, Not because I want parents who kill their children to be punished severely. I don't really know how much we should be punishing people. I'm not a I'm not a legal expert, so I I don't really know the answers to that question. But what I do have a problem with is when scientists like evolutionary psychologists step forward and there isn't an opposition or a an intelligent, responsible, you know, response to it, then these people who have a flawed argument get to run the show. And, And this sort of thing is not an isolated issue. Uh, I didn't cherry pick the various different articles to find research that I could pick apart easily. It was just the opposite. I really wanted to get behind evolutionary psychology because I believe the, the science is sound, but I couldn't find any research that I could say, here you go. Here's a good example of the use of this science. Repeatedly, over and over again, I would read with my hopes up, and then halfway through it, I would say, oh my God, they're falling for the same fallacies that so many of these other articles are falling into. Things like reductionism, genetic determinism, no discussions of culture or of learning, a lack of political responsibility, participation in the status quo and the oppression of individuals, and I'll get more into that later, but... It's pretty awful. So I'm going to provide a quote that is along these lines. They, They write, and I quote, Evolutionary psychology demonstrates that some filicides are rational acts, specifically by identifying contemporary parental motives that may have equivalence to the adaptive pressures of our evolutionary past. So let me just repeat this, this, um, this quote, because I think it, it really typifies my complaint about this sort of research. They write, and I quote, Evolutionary psychology demonstrates that some filicides are rational acts, specifically by identifying contemporary parental motives that may have equivalence to the adaptive pressures of our evolutionary past. So they have the phrase may have equivalence, which is responsible. But the first line is evolutionary psychology demonstrates that some filicides are rational acts. That's a, that's a pretty interesting statement. Basically what they're saying is that Due to our evolutionary past, we evolved a mechanism that compels us to kill our children under certain circumstances because it's rational, quote unquote, to do so. In order for the family to survive, sometimes that requires killing one's children. And I'm not saying that's true. I'm just saying that's what they're saying, basically. And that was true for early humans. And therefore, we can excuse, to some extent, contemporary humans engaging in that behavior because it's due to evolution and genetic determinism. Now, I'm not saying that it's not a valid argument. I'm not saying that it's, it's, it's a lie. It's a, it's a pack of lies. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, is that in order to make such a claim, you have to support it. And it's very difficult to support that. They would have to, again, in my mind, get a time machine, go back in time, 
and observe humans back then and or take humans today, raise them in a different environment that had a different culture and experiment on them and see if they exhibited similar behavior or not to determine what is genetically determined, so to speak, and what is not is not only a nonsensical question for the most part, but uh, even if it did make sense, it's extremely hard to answer that question. And, and also, by extension, if evolutionary psychologists make this argument, almost any behavior could be related to evolution. An example I thought of when I was reading this was, it could be argued that Hitler, by, by killing millions of innocent people, Hitler was merely acting, acting upon his instinct to raise his status so he could gain more mates and thereby propagate his genes more successfully. I mean, no evolutionary psychologist would make that argument because they would be ridiculed for it. But essentially, that's what they're saying in this article. They're saying that these parents kill their children due to an adaptive psychological mechanism that human evolved. And they don't really know that. You know, another example would be Maybe we evolved a psychological mechanism that kicks in when we're overcrowded, when there are too many humans around and not enough resources. Maybe a psychological mechanism kicks in and we start murdering people to reduce the population. And, and that's why Hitler and other people ha in recent times have, have wiped out millions of people because the cities of Europe were overcrowded and it engaged this psychological mechanism. So you can see that you can really make up anything you want to and say it was due to evolution and slap the label evolutionary psychology on it, and there you go. Now, again, I'm not saying that these things aren't true. I'm just saying they haven't demonstrated the evidence sufficiently. And in popular media, evolutionary psychologists will come up with these made-up stories, these just-so stories, and the media and the, and the public will just eat it up. And I've seen that time and again. For instance, I don't know if people remember recently a, a video online. It was on Fox News where they have uh, four or five different men talking about how horrible it is that a recent, recent study came out showing that, that in four out of ten of American households, the woman is the primary breadwinner. And these men are saying that this is the, the end of society, uh, which I find to be extremely problematic. I mean, it, it's, it's problematic in a number of ways because really when I see that statistic, I see further example of sexism because it really should be five out of ten. Uh, if, if things were truly equal, half of the households would have the woman as the as earning more money, and half of the household would ha has, half of the households would have the men as earning most of the money. It's just statistically, you know, that would that would make sense. But to them, four out of ten is a disaster because presumably they want it to be one out of ten or less or something. I don't know. But what one of the pundits says in this is that. So the quote goes, and it's by a man named Eric Erickson, who is, I don't think, related to the psychologist Eric Erickson. But anyway, uh, he says that due to human nature, men are more dominant than women. And that in the animal kingdom, men are always dominant over women. And therefore, when we have a society where men are not dominant over women, we have a problem and it means that our society is going down the tubes. And you'll hear this argument, actually. If you start listening for 
evolutionary psychology to crop up. You'll hear it a lot in, in the way people talk. So what Erickson said in that video was this, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit just to make it make more sense because he leaves out words that uh, I think he intended to say because he was on the spot. But anyway, he, he basically said this, when you look at biology, when you look at the natural world, when you look at the roles of a male and a female in society and other animals, the male typically is the dominant role. He goes on to say, we have lost the ability to have complementary relationships in nuclear families, and it's tearing us apart. So again, let me just repeat this. And again, I'm paraphrasing and I'm leaving out some words because it doesn't make because he was sort of rambling. But I think you would agree that this is basically what he said. Um, when you look at biology, when you look at the natural world, when you look at the roles of a male and a female in society and other animals, the male typically is the dominant role. We have lost the ability to have complementary relationships in nuclear families, and it's tearing us apart. Uh, so this popped up, and I was just sort of guffawing at it, and then I thought, wait a second, he's talking about evolutionary psychology. He's basically saying that men and women have evolved to have a psychological mechanism that compels men to dominate women and for women to be submissive to men. And this is quote unquote natural. And therefore, when we go against nature, that's when our society goes down the tubes. Now, this is problematic in so many different ways. And let me just uh, rant about it for a second. First of all, they have absolutely no evidence of that claim. When it comes to early humans, we have no idea how social relationships were managed back then. And even if we did, I'm guessing there would be a lot of variance. Another thing is that in the animal kingdom, there are plenty of examples, including other primates, where the males do not dominate. But really the most important point here, even if it was quote-unquote natural for men to dominate women, and even if we did evolve psychological mechanisms that compel men to adopt dominant behaviors and feel threatened by threats to their dominance by women. And even if women evolve psychological mechanisms to seek dominant men and to want to be dominated for their own safety or something, even if that were true, which I don't think it is, but even if it were true, that doesn't mean we have to have our society according to that quote unquote nature. There are lots of things in our nature that we choose not to follow. It could be argued fairly effectively, that it's within our nature that when we feel threatened, we attack people physically, that we have an impulse to punch them in the face or to take a rock and crack it across their head. I would say that there's a lot of evidence that shows that within the animal kingdom, that violent impulses are perhaps adaptive to some species. So it's natural to take a rock and, and to beat someone with it. But when we think about it, we think, well, no, we don't want people hitting people over the head with rocks. There are other ways to resolve our issues, namely the legal system. We, you can talk it out. You can get a mediator. Uh, you don't have to crack someone across the head with a rock. So, so we are going against our nature. Do you think early humans had courts of law and policies and governments? Absolutely not. So it's completely unnatural to have the law and to, and to have governments and elected officials. This is completely unnatural for us, but because certain problems cannot be solved with our natural ways, we have 
we have invented these other institutions, which I think are a good thing. So even if it was natural that men dominate women, it doesn't mean we have to give into that nature and have to go along with it. And I think all of us rational people would agree that it's unfair to dominate other people. And it's unfair to expect people to be subservient to us. And, you know, when I look at this study, and I think it's just further evidence of the unfairness, as I talked about before. So I'll stop my ranting. But anyway. Okay. So just as another example that I came across, and again, I didn't look very deep for these sexist quotes. I, I just did a regular old literature review. And this article was something that came up without much digging. And, and honestly, I'll tell you, I wasn't digging for sexist uh, things within evolutionary psychology. I began this whole investigation in evolutionary psychology, trying to learn more about it and actually trying to find the good in evolutionary psychology. But I found horrible things at every turn. And I started to realize why evolutionary psychology has such a bad reputation. It's almost like they, they like to piss people off. And so let me go on a little tangent. I, I think the reason why they're like this is because, and I should say that they, the people that I'm sort of thinking about in my mind, I actually have a lot of respect for them. Uh, those individuals are Richard Dawkins, David Buss, Cosmedes and Tubi, Steve Pinker. These people, I really enjoy a lot of the things that they have to say, and I think that they have a lot of integrity. But sometimes they say things that are just absurd, like in the Steve Pinker TED Talk, he gives this TED Talk, you can find it online. Uh, for the first half an hour, I'm totally with him. And, and I, I'm like, I'm like, yeah, this is good. This is, this is good stuff. And then he says something after he's got everyone on board. He says that um, he's trying to make the argument that uh, we're much more determined by our genetics than we'd like to accept. And he says that science has proven that parents have no effect on their children, that babies are born into this world with a disposition that cannot be changed and that that disposition does not get affected by parents. I, I think he was identifying twin studies in which twins are separated at birth and raised in different households and the children grow up to be extremely similar. And according to that, he says, uh, that proves that parents have no effect on, on children. And, and he doesn't just hint at that. He doesn't just sort of uh, suggest that parenting might not have as much of a role as we think. He, he says something along the lines of parenting has no effect on children, which is not only just on its face seemingly idiotic, but there's a whole field of science and, a, and just mounds of evidence showing that parenting has a lot to do with child development. If not, most of the uh, developmental issues that children face have to do with their parents. Anyway, so it's just those kind of claims that I think ruin it. And I, I think, and this is my opinion, this is my guess, is that these famous evolutionary psychologists get headlines by saying these kinds of things. If they said things in a more responsible way, like the data seems to suggest that maybe one of the 10 factors happens to be evolutionary psychology. If they said something that downplayed it, um, if they were more conservative or more moderate in their points of view, they wouldn't get any headlines. Everyone would be like, well, there's, there's nothing interesting in what you're saying, or it's too watered down by other fields that aren't related to your field. 
And so I think it's basically conditioned them to say these outrageous things and then to find ways to support it rather than just looking at the data and coming up with conclusions based on observation and sound science. But that's just my opinion. I'm not inside their heads. And this isn't true for for all of them. The other reason I think that evolutionary psychologists tend to uh, piss people off is because I think when the field first came out and under different names like sociobiology, I think when it first came out, a lot of people uh, railed against it because they didn't like the idea that humans are affected by evolution. And that I think evolutionary psychologists have an honest beef with. You know, I think when these ideas first started emerging in the 50s, 60s, 70s, there were a lot of people that were saying, how dare you compare me to an animal? I am not an animal. I'm a human being. And the scientists would say, you're an animal like any other, and you have instincts like any other, and you have genetics like any other, and you evolved like any other animal. And, and so I think whenever evolutionary psychologists get get blowback or criticism, I think they they just blanketly label it as another example of the idiot masses trying to uh, refute evolution and instincts in general, rather than taking some time to really listen to what people have to say. And I think that things are changing because a lot of really excellent writers are beginning to write. They're not very popular, but I've come across some 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 really excellently written critiques of evolutionary psychology, particularly uh, feminists writing critiques. In in fact, when I did a lit review of things published in the last year, a majority of the things published or half or something of the things that I came across were critiques and and a lot of those were feminist critiques. So and I think that there's so much written because a lot of people are starting to say, hey, uh, we've got to speak up here because no one is providing the alternative or the criticism of something that is is pervading our culture. Uh, so many people are getting on board with these claims made by a few psych, you know, evolutionary psychologists and there's major problems with these claims, not only just scientifically, but also politically. Because, again, to say that women have evolved to be subservient to men has incredibly harmful political effects. You know, giving sexist men the right, so to speak, to to dominate women because it's natural and to give the message to women that it's natural for them to be subservient and should therefore not try to be equal, to not try to get equal pay, to not try to have equal rights, um, because it's not natural. You know, these messages are extremely harmful. So along those lines, uh, one of the articles that I found, and I didn't have to look very far, was written by a man named Kingsley Brown in 2006, uh, published in the journal Managerial and Decision Economics. So it's not a psychological journal. But just to give you an example of how evolutionary psychology has pervaded many different fields, including economics. So Kingsley Brown is, a, is notorious because he provides a lot of commentary against 
feminist movements for equality. Like he provides a lot of arguments saying that sexual harassment is natural for men, that men evolved a psychological mechanism to be extremely horny, I guess, and to see women as sex objects. You know, they're, they can't help it. Men can't help but to but to want to have sex with women all the time. And therefore, if, if sexual harassment happens in the workplace, it's not men's fault. It's due to genetic determinism. And I'm not even joking. That's basically what his argument is. And that's extremely offensive. As a man myself, who has never sexually harassed anybody before, I can say that uh, it's not natural for me to sexually harass people. And of the men that I know well, uh, it's not natural for us to want to harm other individuals. And, and certainly when I'm at work, I'm not constantly thinking about having sex with, with other women at work. That sounds funny. I, I would say that I'm never having thoughts about that. Men are not walking hard-ons. They, they have the ability to discriminate between their sexual partners and the people that they work with. So this idea that w- we've, we've been programmed to you know, want to have sex with every woman that comes our way is really absurd. And not only is it oppressive towards women because it's saying that it's natural for, for men to do this, but it's also oppressive and sexist towards men. It's insulting, honestly, that anyone would say that men have a disposition to be horny and, and harass people. That's oppressive to men. And I think that this message is actually pretty pervasive in our culture, that you know, men think about sex every seven seconds, which is absurd and not supported by science. But these these ideas basically pigeonhole men as these horny, out of control people. And I think to some extent, some men even give into it and say, well, I guess that's how I'm supposed to be in order to be a man. I, I've got to start thinking about sex more and I've got to start being more dominant in this way. But anyway, getting back to the Kingsley Brown article uh, in 2006, and, and I quote, Men tend, for reasons traceable to our evolutionary heritage, to engage in behaviors that cause them to earn more money than women. So let me just say that quote again. I hope you're gasping. But, uh, and he's, he's somewhat respected. Uh, he's certainly uh, controversial, but, but you know, he's getting published and people read his stuff. He's written books anyway. So I, I quote, Men tend, for reasons traceable to our evolutionary heritage, to engage in behaviors that cause them to earn more money than women. So just imagine this for a second. He's saying that due to evolution, men have the traits that get them to earn more money than women. And that the fact that statistics have shown that men earn more money than women do at the same job doing the same tasks is because of evolution and has nothing to do with sexism or the oppression of women, or the messages that women are of less worth than men. So again, not only is this highly offensive to claim that women don't possess the traits that it takes in order to compete with men, which is absolutely absurd, but it's also not supported by the science. When you look at study upon study that show that men and women undervalue women, it's not that women don't have what it takes. It's just that people don't see women in the same way that they see men. A study off the top of my head, I don't have it in front of me, but there have been many along these lines, that will take a a resume and they will 
have it two identical resumes, except on one resume, they'll have a female name and on the other, they'll have a male name and they send it out. And time and time again, uh, evaluators of those resumes, both men and women will identify the female resume as having problems, whereas the male resume tends to be moved to the top of the list. So how does Kingsley Brown figure that into his statement that men, due to evolution, have what it takes to earn more money than women do? I don't know. So as you, as you can tell, I'm getting hot under the collar because I think it deserves it. All right. Well, that does it for the psychology portion of this episode. I thought I would go on to talking about music. Uh, but, but before I do that, I just want to remind people that they can go to psychologyinseattle.com and learn how to contact us. And you can also find all of our episodes on there and other goodies. Along with the, the support us page on that page, you can follow the directions on how to show your support. Because we only do this podcast for you, for the listener. And unless we get feedback, we don't know anyone's listening. And then we just give up and cry ourselves to sleep at night. So you don't want that to happen. So show your support in whatever way you can. So on to music. As with other episodes that I do by myself, I will talk about some of the songs that my band has recorded. And you don't have to listen to this if you don't want to, of course. This next song is called Abandon. And it's on the third album that my band released this year. My band is called Bread Knife Incident. And another way to support the show is to go to iTunes and buy some of our music, Bread Knife Incident. This song is called Abandon, and let's just hear a clip from that. can I say about this song? Well, first off, the lyrics are really quite sad. I wrote these lyrics in response to observing a lot of people that I work with and a lot of people that I know who have been abandoned by a parent and how the pain of this lasts throughout one's lifetime. So the lyrics go, distracted parent leaves and the child grieves the saddest thing she knows to see him go. Will he come back? No. She waits and all the while looking out the window. Inside, she stays a child forever. Before he leaves, he turns and sees her cry. Kiss upon her head and say goodbye. Will he come back? No. She waits and all the while looking out the window. Inside, she stays a child forever. So I always feel funny reading lyrics out loud. It, it's, you know, lyrics, the lyrics really need to be in the context of the song. 
I just feel pretentious reading lyrics out loud. It's not really my form, but as you can tell, it's, it's a very sad song. And I think it really, for me, encapsulates how I feel about this sort of thing. When a parent abandons a child, the child internalizes this and feels as though it's their fault and they will, I mean, not always, but often, and they'll, metaphorically be waiting at the window always for the return of their parent, even after it seems unlikely that their parent will return. And the consequence of this is throughout the person's life, they will continue to feel like a child in some ways. I mean, we all do to some extent uh, under certain circumstances, particularly, but I think for people that were abandoned, they are much more likely to, regress to a insecure, hurt, abandoned self when faced with similar behavior or hints of it in other people. As adults, we face frequent tiny rejections and and sometimes great rejections. So when these rejections occur, those who have been abandoned are more likely to have this child self emerge and to feel extremely hurt by the rejection, which makes sense because there's this issue of theirs that has been internalized and unresolved. And sometimes these people end up in therapy and I end up talking with them and it's, it's really quite sad and could have been prevented if the parent just would have stuck around and loved their child sufficiently. So let's go to another clip of the song. So I thought it might be interesting to listen to earlier versions of this song because they're really quite different. Uh, But before we listen to uh, some clips, remember, as I've said on previous episodes, when I'm writing music, I write lyrics last. And so as I'm recording different drafts of the song so that I don't forget them, I usually just make up syllables that don't make any sense. And sometimes phrases will emerge, but usually I don't keep them. So please disregard the syllables that are coming out of my mouth. It's more about the melody and it might sound a little silly, but it's, it's what I do when I'm writing music before I write lyrics. So let's listen to an earlier version of the song. In his trouble now, you're not in Wow, it's really quite different from the song that eventually was recorded. Uh, let's, let's listen to another earlier version. Mm-hmm. 
So it sounds like I wrote the song to be originally very fast and upbeat, and then this version seems to be a little slower, more more moody. But then eventually I got to this super moody version, which is the you know the song that ended up going on the album. So just as a reminder of how moody the song eventually became, here's a little clip from this, the the end result. Thanks for allowing me to share some music with you. And again, if you like the music, you can go to iTunes and buy some music by Bread Knife Incident. And that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me and please take care of yourself.